Welcome in the name of the Lord. This is David Olford. The expository biblical message you're about to hear was delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen Olford. This message is made available to you by the Stephen Olford Ministry Legacy, LLC. We trust that this message from the Word of God will be a blessing to you. Now here is my father, Dr. Stephen Olford. Let us bow together in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. May I first of all take this opportunity in the name of the Holy Child Jesus to wish our boards, our members, our friends and our guests a very blessed Christmas. May the joy of the Lord, which we celebrate at this time, be your strength. Our theme this morning as we turn to this glorious Christmas message is entitled, Back to Bethlehem. Back to Bethlehem. And as a starting point, I want you to turn to one of the most remarkable prophecies in the entire Bible. It's found in Micah, the prophecy of Micah, chapter 5, and at verse 2. Micah 5 and verse 2. And from there we shall turn to the passage that was read to us a little earlier in Luke chapter 2. First of all then in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And with that portion open before you, let, my, let me just say, let me say very simply that second only to Jerusalem, Bethlehem is the most notable place in all the world when considered in the unfolding drama of world history. As a city, it has become the theme of poets, the subject of artists, and the gold of pilgrims. And we can never celebrate Christmas without coming back to Bethlehem. And as we shall see in a moment from its name and its fame, there is a prophecy concerning this city, there is a history concerning this city, and there is a mystery concerning this city. First of all, as to the prophecy, Bethlehem is the city of prophecy. And in Micah 5 and 2 we read, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me one that is ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Now it's generally accepted by scholars that this is one of the clearest and most striking prophecies in all the scriptures concerning the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know that prophecies abound in the Old Testament. No less than 333 prophecies concerning his coming were fulfilled to the very letter. But we go right back to Eden and we hear one of the very first prophecies. When God addressed the serpent, you remember, after the fall and said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And from that moment onwards, prophecy after prophecy comes throughout the scriptures, punctuating every paragraph and book until we find the fulfillment in the babe of Bethlehem. 
God spoke to patriarchs, to prophets, to potentates, until in the fullness of time, what Isaiah tells us in that glorious chapter 9 and verse 6 actually happened. Yes, the son was given, but a child was born. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. But I return to Micah 5.2 because as I have pointed out that amongst all Jewish and devout readers of the Bible the prophecy most treasured and most often taught was the prophecy of Micah 5 and 2 and for many reasons. Here in unmistakable terms we have first of all the identity of the coming Christ. The identity of the coming Christ. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me one that is to be ruler in Israel. As we shall see in a moment, this one was none other than the babe of Bethlehem. And if you were to read this entire second chapter of Micah and then over to chapter 5 and verse 2 onwards, you would see that in this immediate context there is no doubt at all as to the identity of this coming Christ. But I want to remind you that when the Magi traveled over all those miles and came to Jerusalem seeking the newborn king, all Israel was troubled and King Herod with them. And when the king called all the doctors of the law and all the scribes and learned men of Jerusalem and inquired diligently of them where Christ should be born, these people of learning without hesitation replied, you remember, quoting Micah 5 and 2 in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. They themselves were aware of the fact that if the Messiah had been born, if the Messiah had come, if this birth had taken place, then Micah 5 and 2 had been fulfilled. The identity of the coming Christ. But alongside of this I want you to notice from this prophecy the divinity of the coming Christ whose goings forth had been from old and from everlasting. Here is the clearest statement concerning the pre-existent nature of the babe of Bethlehem. The evangelist John in his prologue says the same thing, for you remember he declares, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in an hour when rightly so, the humanity of the Lord Jesus is being brought to the fore once again, especially by our young people who see in him a kinship in the sense in which he was truly man, let us never forget that he was God, our very God. In the beginning was the Logos and the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. Now reason is baffled before this mystery of the incarnation but what our minds cannot grasp or grab, grab, grasp what our minds cannot grasp our hearts can confidently and reverently accept by faith. As we behold our Lord in his eternal existence and glory, creator of all things, giver of life, imparter of light, we bow in adoring worship before the babe of Bethlehem who is also the ancient of days. So we have the identity of the coming Christ in his prophecy. 
We have the divinity of the coming Christ in this prophecy. But we likewise have the humanity of the coming Christ in this prophecy. But thou Bethlehem, Ephrata, out of thee shall come forth one that is to be ruler in Israel. The miracle of the incarnation did take place. Man aspires, only God condescends. So the creator of all things chose to express his infinity within the confinements of a little babe. There was no other way in which God could come down to you and to me in terms of flesh and blood, save by this means. For God, who is omniscient, who is all-wise, whose all discerning movements are eternal, had to choose a way, and he chose the right way. And so we read those touching and tender words, and Mary brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. To use the words of Wesley, God had contracted to the measure of a woman's womb. And as that fully formed babe was delivered of his mother, that infant cry, the cry of a newborn babe, was echoed in the courts of heaven itself. And out from glory burst forth an angel with announcement and that a host and multitude of angels with a song we've heard already this morning, glory to God in the highest, on earth peace and goodwill toward men. That was the hour of his incarnation. This day in the city of David is born unto you a savior which is Christ the Lord. His identity was foretold. His divinity was foretold. His humanity was foretold. And once more, his activity was foretold. For out of thee shall come one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old. And then in verse four, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of Jehovah his God. In majestic language, the messianic purpose of the coming Christ is spelled out here in no uncertain terms. He was to be sovereign and shepherd of his people. He came as sovereign to lead his people. He came as shepherd to feed his people. And later on, he could look into the face of his own disciples and say a, a word that was very, very dimly understood until the break, greater light broke forth by the power of the Holy Spirit. For in that sixth chapter of John, he said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. He came to lead his people as sovereign, a ruler in Israel. He came to feed his people. He shall stand and feed his people in the name of the Lord God. So much then for the prophecy concerning Bethlehem.
Bethlehem is the city of prophecy. But in the second place, I want you to notice that Bethlehem is the city of history. And we come to chapter 2 of Luke. Luke chapter 2. And in fact, that entire chapter is full of history. But let us concentrate for a few moments on the verses that were read this morning. And Joseph and Mary went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea and to a city of David which is called Bethlehem. What Micah had prophesied under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was eventually fulfilled to the very letter. But in order to grasp something of the sweep of the history that is gathered up in the little city of Bethlehem, we need to consider three aspects of God's sovereign overrulings in this unfolding drama of world events. There is first of all the history of a divine preparation. The history of a divine preparation. The city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now if you were to study your Old Testament very carefully, you would discover that Bethlehem was a town five or six miles southwest of Jerusalem. A town that can still be found today more of a hamlet or a village than a town, but called a city, as we shall see in a moment, after King David. It stands 2,500 feet above sea level in the hill country of Judea and on the main highway from Hebron to Egypt. In Jacob's time, it was called Ephrath and was the burial place of Rachel. After the conquest of Canaan, it was called Bethlehem of Judea to distinguish it from another Bethlehem of Zebulun, a little further down in the land. It was, as you know, the home of Ibzan, the first judge of Israel. It was likewise the home of Imelech, the father-in-law of Ruth, as well as that wonderful, wonderful man called Boaz. For he stands out in history, as we shall so see in a moment, in the line of ancestral lineage. Here David fed his father's sheep. Here David strummed his harp. Here David composed some of those great psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. In Jeremiah's time, the caravan inn of Kimham was near Bethlehem, the usual starting point when travelers began to move down to Egypt. And on highest authority, it is assumed that this was the very inn to which Joseph and Mary came to bring the unborn Messiah, who was refused because there was no room for them in the inn. And beloved, we can't reflect on some of these points without seeing that an all-wise God had prepared in history this wonderful city called Bethlehem. Because if we examine the ancestral line, as I pointed out, through which Jesus came, we shall find such names as Jacob, Boaz, Ruth, Jesse, and David, all associated with Bethlehem. There is the history then of a divine preparation. But there is also the history of a divine visitation. 
For in Luke 2 verses 4 and 7 we read the city of David which is called Bethlehem. There the days were accomplished that she, Mary, should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now we can't read these words without being impressed with the facts that make up history. For history is made up of facts. In the second chapter of Luke we read of a place. We read of a time. We read of a sign. All associated with God's intervention into history. God's breaking through into the stream of life. The place, of course, was Bethlehem. Historians tell us that the general census, which occurred at this time throughout the Roman Empire, was the very first of its kind. Little did Caesar Augustus know that he was being used as the instrument for bringing about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ in the right place. Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, you remember. But because the census required their presence in their ancestral home, they had to take the journey all the way to Bethlehem in spite of Mary's pregnancy and condition. What was true about the place, of course, is true about the time. If we search the pages of history, we will find that in no other generation could the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ have taken place. Shakespeare once put it, that there is a tide in the affairs of men. And I want to add, there was a tide in the affairs of God. For this was the fullness of time. This was the moment God had chosen. Bethlehem suddenly became the converging point of two eternities. And in a given moment of time, Mary brought forth her son. And heaven broke loose. And the announcing angel declared, This day in the city of David is born a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The right place. The right time. And also the right sign. So the narrative tells us that when the angels had explained the story, they reported to the shepherds, you will find a sign. And the sign is a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. That sign was no rare illusion. That sign was a real infant. That sign was God manifest in the flesh. So we see the reality of the divine visitation. The history of a divine preparation. The history of a divine visitation. But also the history of a divine celebration. For me, Christmas is a celebration. My heart's been dancing from the very early hours of this morning and even throughout the past week as I've anticipated this moment. Why? Because history marks points along life's journey when we celebrate. And I want to remind you that there was a celebration and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field keeping watch over their flock by night and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, 
which is Christ the Lord. To confirm the historic event, God overruled that there should be a threefold celebration. Here is the first one. The immediate celebration was the appearance of an angel with a message I have just read. Fear not! Fear not! Fear be God! Why? God has come. God has come. This day in the city of David is born a deliverer, a deliverer from fear, a deliverer from sin, a deliverer from gloom, even Christ the Lord. And they celebrated for a host of angels followed that announcing angel, saying glory to God in the highest on earth peace and goodwill toward men. The subsequent celebration was that of the adoration of the shepherds, who having heard the word of the angel said, let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all that heard it wondered at those things which were spoken to them of the shepherd. And they returned to their own country, praising and worshipping God. The second aspect of the celebration. A little time later, the third celebration took place when the wise men, the magi, who having seen the star of the Lord in the east traveled many miles to Jerusalem to worship the newborn king. And after making inquiries, they were, laid, they were led to a little house in Bethlehem where they found the child Jesus lying in a manger. And we read these precious words. They fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts gifts celebration time gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh back to Bethlehem brings us back to a prophecy back to Bethlehem brings us back to a history a moment in God's great span of eternity where pinpointed is a history of an event and the event the birth of Christ the Lord but what has warmed my heart as I've meditated upon this wonderful name Bethlehem is what I'm about to share with you now with the prophecy and the history Bethlehem is the city of mystery and I want us very closely to follow this in Luke 2 and 4 we read the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now it's highly significant that this city had two names. One was an official name, the other was a poetical name. This city was called Bethlehem. This city was called Ephrata. Bethlehem, Ephrata. The name Bethlehem means the house of bread. The name Ephrata means the field of fruit. The house of bread. The field of fruit. Such names in scripture always carry divine connotations. And it does not take very much spirituality or intelligence 
to research the connotation and meaning behind these two concepts. The house of bread, the field of fruit. I want to remind you, beloved people within this sanctuary, and wherever my voice is being heard this day, that the Lord Jesus came into the world to be bread and wine for a fallen race. In other words, the mystery of Bethlehem is gathered up in the significance of what is meant by the body and the blood of Christ. Paul expresses the same thought when he says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Or in the rendering of William Hendrickson, confessedly great is the mystery of our devotion and of Christ's devotion. And then follow statements which demonstrate the outworking of Christ's devotion to the will of God and to the work of God. In other words, in order to become bread for a dying world, Jesus gave his body. In order to become wine to a thirsty world, Jesus gave his blood. And the mystery or secret which can only be divulged to the initiates of the Christian faith who are illumined by the Holy Spirit is that the Lord Jesus Christ came to give his body and blood that we might have a savior from every sin. That we might have a heaven to enter in. That one day we should sit down around the table of our Lord at the great supper and eat and drink together to celebrate what happened at Bethlehem, Ephrata. As we study the New Testament, we learn first that the body of Christ symbolized the Savior's submission to the will of God. Mark that clearly. The Savior's submission to the will of God. That's his body. Jesus could say, a body thou hast prepared for me. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will. O my God, thy law is within my heart. And throughout his entire life, the Savior had one consuming passion, and that was to find and follow and finish the will of God. He could say, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. The spiritual bread on which our Savior fed every day of his life was the will of his father and if we know anything of the true message of Christmas we must plumb this mystery and learn this secret of doing the will of God just as our Lord fed on the will of God so must we he could declare as the living father has sent me and I live by the father so he that eateth me even he shall live by me this is that bread which came down from heaven he that eateth this bread shall live forever. This is the mystery of Bethlehem. This is the house of bread. And until we make God's will the bread of our lives, until our consuming passion is to eat this bread and so fulfill the will of God, we don't know anything of Christmas. The whole purpose of the incarnation is wrapped up in just this. He came to be the house of bread. And his bread was the will of his father. Our bread is the will of our father. Worked out in our lives. 
He has prepared bodies for us, that in us the incarnation should be perpetuated. The incarnation should be perpetuated. The will of God worked out in us and through us, through our eyes, our brains, our hands, our feet, our lives, our hearts, God's Holy Spirit translating, galvanizing the will of God in our lives day by day. But if the body of Christ symbolized the Savior's submission to God's redemptive will, think again. The blood of Christ symbolized the Savior's commission to God's redemptive work. The blood of Christ symbolizes the Savior's commission to God's redemptive work. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And in order for that blood to be shed, I want to say the precious life of the Lord Jesus had to be crushed. For the Lord Jesus was not only the house of bread, the Lord Jesus was the field of fruit. He could say, I am the vine and my father is the husbandman. And on Calvary's cross, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And as that precious life was crushed, out came that wine of heaven, out came that royal blood that washes us clean every whit. And because of the outpouring of that life, we can now live, for Jesus declared, my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Ours is the joy to appropriate that life, laid down violently in death, but taken again in resurrection, and now made real to us by the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, so that because of Bethlehem we not only have bread, we have wine. In the body we see the will of God worked out. In the blood we see the work of God completed and finished. That's why he cried in another midnight, midday, on Calvary's cross, Finished! His work was done. The crushing was over. The fruit field was now ready for you and me. This then is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And as we look into the face of the babe of Bethlehem, we see God's redemptive will. We see God's redemptive work potentially about to be worked out in the body and the blood of Jesus. Bethlehem, the house of bread. Ephrata, the field of fruit. No wonder Simeon could hold that infant Christ in his arms and say, Lord, Lord, despot of the universe, now lettest thou thy servant, yes, thy bond slave, loose, let him free. For mine eyes, mine eyes have seen thy salvation. And here this morning there isn't a boy or girl, there isn't a man or woman, because Jesus has become our Bethlehem, our Ephrata, our house of bread, our house of wine. There is no one here in this place who can't by faith embrace that same Christ and say, Now then, Lord, 
Thou releasing Lord, let your servant loose, free, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. This must be our bread. This must be our wine. Bethlehem and Ephrata must be more than just names. They must be a call to submission and a call to commission in the outworking of God's saving will and saving work in the world of today. So as we come back to Bethlehem, it is my prayer, my earnest prayer, that the prophecy concerning Bethlehem will illumine us, that the history concerning Bethlehem will inform us, that the mystery concerning Bethlehem will inspire us to be broken bread and poured out wine for the needy men and women all around us. Only thus shall we know the true meaning and message and blessing of Christmas. Have you plumbed the mystery? Will you break bread with me this morning? Will you drink wine with me this morning? For in that babe of Bethlehem we have that mystery all wrapped up. For without controversy, this is the mystery of godliness. Come with me back to Bethlehem. Come back to the prophecy. Come back to the history. But supremely as Christians, as initiates, come back to the mystery and eat bread and drink wine with me. While a young rector in Philadelphia, in 1865, Phillips Brooks made a pilgrimage to Palestine, now known as Israel. The day before Christmas, he rode on horseback from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and visited the usual sites of the little village and then quietly went eastward to the traditional field of the shepherds. And as the darkness fell and he stood there alone very quietly, he tried to capture again the scene as the stars broke through that Syrian sky. And he tried to imagine the angel announcing the birth of Christ and that multitude of the heavenly host singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. And his heart was stirred. His emotions were lit with a fire from heaven. Jumping on his horse, he rode down into Jerusalem and joined in that great service always conducted at this time of the year in Constantine's ancient basilica built in 326 AD over the traditional site of the nativity. The service started at 10 o'clock and went on until 3 a.m. But the longer it went on, the more his heart was moved until words began to form. And he took his journey back to Philadelphia and sitting at his desk recalling that memorable moving experience, he wrote O Little Town 
of Bethlehem, now sung all over the world. His organist and choir master, a man by the name of Louis Redner, wrote the music and combined with the lyrics and melody of that wonderful, wonderful little carol, I believe we're, wrought, we're brought back here this morning again to Bethlehem. And I'm going to suggest that as a response to the challenge of the message back to Bethlehem today, we do two things. First, that in a moment at the signal we bow our heads and as I quietly read these words, you make them your prayer. You make them your prayer. You make that life of yours a Bethlehem for prophecy and history and mystery to begin. And then presently we shall rise to confess what we have prayed without shame, sham or shrinking that truly our lives have become a Bethlehem. Let us pray. Just where you sit in that home or lie in that hospital or ride in that automobile or here in this hallowed sanctuary I want to invite you to come back to Bethlehem. I mean back to Bethlehem. And if this message has meant anything and you want prophecy, history and mystery to combine to bring about the miracle of regeneration of the birth of Christ within us then make this your prayer O little town of Bethlehem how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above while mortals sleep the angels keep their watch of wandering love. O morning stars together proclaim the holy birth and praises sing to God the King and peace to men on earth how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sins and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, their glad tidings swell. O come to us. Abide with us. Our Lord, Emmanuel, Lord, answer prayer and make our hearts, our lives, a Bethlehem this day.
For Jesus' sake, amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.